few years ago, a friend of mine, good friend of mine, named Pax, who I've talked about many times, uh, gave me a birthday gift of Uncharted 1 and I think 2. And the next year he gave me a birthday gift of Uncharted 3. I never actually got around to finally playing those games until for this rumination. It wasn't out of ungratitude. It wasn't out of lack of interest. It was just I never really had the time to devote to them. Now, I didn't actually realize just how relatively short these games are. And not complaining, by the way, I'm not getting on that particular bandwagon. I'm just saying I probably could have beat, played and beaten these games a long time ago. Now, I've been aware of these games for a while, most notably the second one. When I usually talk to people about the Uncharted series, the second one is the one that usually comes up as, oh my god, that is the best of the Uncharted's. Now, I, I hate to do this, but I actually disagree with that, personally, having gone through these four. Although I will say I'm kind of looking forward to the new one, which I guess uh, came out a couple months ago now. Pretty recently. The, the one that's involving Chloe and Nadine. Uh, sounds interesting to me. I mean, it was already interested in it, but it's it's even more interesting to me now, having gone through all four games pretty much back to back to back uh, over yesterday and today. Now, what I find interesting is this was always intended to be a new IP, but it was never intended to be a franchise per se, based on everything I've read from Naughty Dog themselves. And as I was looking through it, that makes more and more sense because the first game is just kind of there. And the second game kind of connects to the first game, but it's effectively its own uni its own story. It isn't until the third game that they actually start building a setting and a world and backstory and character development, you know, in any significant amount. And then the fourth game feels like a continuation of the third game, the two actually being part of one contiguous story. I don't mean the same story arc. I mean the two connect in a way that, for me, the first two don't. The first two feel like, here's some adventures of Nathan Drake, and the third and the fourth feel more like, here is the life of Nathan Drake, if that makes any sense. I'm, I'm probably not making a huge amount of sense, so let me just move on to my next point. When this is originally quest requested, I'm gonna, I, I always put, well, I shouldn't say always, this is actually a relatively new policy, but nowadays I like to put the name of the specific person who requested a rumination at the end of the credits, but I'm going to say their name right now. This was requested by Shuryu, who has always been a very big supporter of my, me and my show, and so when he said, I want you to look at the, you know, the four Uncharted games, I was like, okay. You know, based on my own system of rumination requests, Shuryu and the massive amount of support he's put into the show, both in terms financially and in terms of being there on streams and being there on YouTube comments and all that fun stuff, um, yeah, he... I'm with it. I'll do it. I'll do the four Uncharted's for you. What I didn't know walking into this is if this would be one video or four. Now, as, as is obvious by what you're saying up there in the title, I have decided now, uh, as of just having recently finished Uncharted 4 like 20 minutes ago, I have gone ahead and decided to do this in one video. My reason is actually very simple. I've always got my notes here, right? Well, here's the whole page. I know you can't see the text on it, but this is Uncharted 1. This is Uncharted 2, this is Uncharted 3, and a little bit of this is Uncharted 3 as well. And then this is Uncharted 4, and then this is the series as a whole. Ultimately, while there's some really high-quality stuff here, I just didn't have a lot to talk about. As ever, a rumination is supposed to be something where I just sit down and talk as if I'm talking to a real person, and, you know, 
trying, as if I was pulled into a room and there's people there who are fans of the Uncharted series, and what do I want to talk about? What do I consider worthy of discussion with regards to the Uncharted series? And that's what I've got on these two pages. Which brings me to my first point. <clears throat> first of all, the gameplay of the Uncharted series actually surprised me a little bit. I wrote down the term cinematic gameplay, but I realize some people might actually take that as an insult, and I in no way mean it as one. Quite the contrary, I actually had a ball playing these games with maybe one or two noteworthy exceptions. I am, after all, really bad at Crash Bandicoot, but I very much had a, a good time... It, I've, I've talked about this many times before, so I'm going to segue here for just a second. This usually comes up for me when it comes to the Final Fantasy series. As in, you know, why aren't the Final Fantasies just books or movies? You know, why are they video games? There's no need for the interactive element. Now, I have always disagreed with that ever since I was a kid. But actually explaining why has always kind of eluded me. It's always come down to the idea that I have more fun playing Final Fantasy VI than I do watching it. And I have watched that game before. I've watched speedruns of that game. Didn't quite mean the same thing to me. But I've never been able to come up with a tangible thing that explains why playing the game involves me more. But it does. I mean, because the argument's always leveled, well, you're not really doing anything. Like, all you're doing is going forward in a narrow, linear path. It's a linear game. You're not deciding anything. But I'm the one doing that. You know, I mean... <laughs> so, <laughs> I know this is a thing often argued, and I have argued this with many people in the past, but one of the most common arg yelling, argument, whatever things that is tossed at the type of game which is linear and doesn't involve a lot of variety in gameplay or a lot of branching paths is it's like watching a movie where the only power you have is the ability to hit pause every now and again. But I don't agree with that. I felt engaged in the gameplay, especially the shooting elements and the, I, I know this is kind of an inaccurate term, but the Assassin's Creedy elements of the game, as in the, the parkour, jumping, climbing around thing. I suppose it would be more accurate to call that Tomb Raider stuff, but I never got into the Tomb Raider, so what do you want from me? So I liked it. I liked the gameplay of these games. And to be blunt, if I had been watching these, I probably wouldn't appreciate these games anywhere near as much as actually sitting down and playing them. Now, I also want to give huge, huge praise to the to these games. I, I'm trying to think how to phrase it. I'm looking at my notes here. First of all, they do something that I am going to refer to as directed motion. I'm not actually sure if that's what they call it. I have seen interviews back when uh, 2 was coming out about how they were doing this. And they had a phrase for it, and I, I wasn't able to actually find the specific interviews about that, so I can't actually repeat that phrase for you, but I'm just going to call it directed motion. They do things with angles and where the camera is fixated and how the camera's moving to deliberately draw your attention to things that are coming up. And I don't just mean in a purely cinematic way, because the whole point is, hey, there's an obstacle coming up that you need to jump over camera kind of swings this way, and the, as the camera's swinging, the obstacle comes into view from the angle, from, from the corner that the angle is pulling in, which automatically draws the eye to it, because all the motion's going in that way, and then you see it, and then you dodge it, that kind of a thing. It's all over the place in the games. I, I, it would be difficult to really narrow down specific instances other than the one I just mentioned, which is on the train sequence, again, in two. 
but they do that all over the place and it's very well done and it is brilliantly directed um excellent cinematography in general fantastic usage of the camera um wonderful wonderful motion and face capture work uh, incredible music excellent sound design even the areas where there was no music there, there's i have a phrase i call no music which is not a literal phrase it is a phrase that refer it's a lorium <laughs> i was actually working on the lorium's page uh when hurricane irma hit and we lost internet for two days at least um but uh, I've been uh, so at some point you'll be able to look at that age. But it's a lorium. It refers to the idea of a scene, either in a movie or a television show or a game, most notably a game, where the absence of music is a mistake. Where because because you can have a scene which doesn't have music and do that to good effect, either for uh, emphasizing the moment or to have, you know, to, to, to lead up to a point, or because it's a deep character thing, you know, something like that. There's plenty of good uses of that. A no-music moment is when there should be music or some kind of sound design to help flesh out the absence of music. The Uncharted series completely skips that. There was no moment at which the absence of music bothered me. And anybody who's watched my streams or watched me do anything knows that absence of music, when it's not properly sound designed, bugs the crap out of me. It's one of the reasons I have playlists on iTunes specifically designed for certain areas. Like, okay, I need some freaking music. Let me fire up the desert playlist because this is bothering me, right? Never had that issue throughout all of Uncharted. Uh, the terrain appearance. One thing I did read from the from the developers for the first game is they mentioned how at that particular era, this was like 2006, I want to say, uh, they were, there. I mean, gaming had been getting a little bit gray and brown. And that's true, gaming had been getting a little bit gray and brown as everyone was trying for realism and ended up getting muddy and murky instead. <clears throat> so they wanted vibrancy. They wanted really bright colors and beautiful panoramic vistas and all sorts of fun stuff like that. And I'd say they succeeded brilliantly. Um, I'm kind of building up to something, but there's also another thing they did very, very well. Background chatter. This is something that quite a few games do well. Even, you know, the FF13s did background chatter quite well. I know those games get a lot of flack, but it is one of the things that helped elevate the games. Uh, the Homeworld series in general has excellent background chatter. You know, the general banter between characters when not in a cutscene, just talking out loud, either when Drake is by himself or talking to each other or talking on the radio... All of that stuff was very well done and really helped to bring me more into the moment and added more general character. Uh, otherwise, Drake himself probably would have come up across as a little bit of a piece of cardboard. And that brings me to my next point. I've, and I've kind of been leading up to this point here, and then we'll start talking about Uncharted 1 in particular. I want to explain why I liked 4 the best. Because 4... Well... You know what? I changed my mind. Why don't we save that? Let's talk about Uncharted 1 instead. I have very, very few notes about Uncharted 1 in specific. It was fun. Um, they used Sully as an interesting anagram, or not anagram, wrong word, uh, uh, a purpose by which he could serve as backstory exposition. There's a term there, and I can't even think of it. And uh, he did a good job of that because... While Uncharted 2 would really nail this, there's several scenes where Sully's just there. And we don't know the backstory between them. We won't find that out until 3. But we don't know the backstory. We don't know how they got to know each other. But by the way they interact, we can infer backstory. And he served good purpose in that. And there will be more of that later. I'll, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. 
So I thought he was good. Also, I just got to give huge, huge praise to the general voice acting cast in general. In this entire series, Richard McGonagall is, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is actually a really great actor. He's done a lot of great stuff over the years that I very much enjoyed. Um, I have to admit, it was hard to narrow down which specific role I was thinking about most every time I heard him. But I have to admit, the lieutenant, whose name I can't even remember, over in Voyager, <laughs> is probably the guy, the guy who was working with uh, Barkley in Pathfinder and another episode as well. I forget the other one, but uh, yeah. That was probably the first one that came to mind. What do you want from me? I'm a Star Trek geek. But he's done a wonderful array of roles over the years, and it was a treat to hear him going. I It's actually funny to me. I decided to go a little digging into this, and I couldn't find hard data. So this is purely from my own perspective. But for me, I didn't hear people really start to complain about Nolan North being everywhere until the Uncharted series came out. Now, I find, I've always found that statement that Nolan North voices everything to be hilarious because I can't think of any Nolan North roles off the top of my head other than this one. Maybe I just don't play the games he's in. I don't know. Like, like when I hear Troy Baker, who I, I personally find to be a fantastic actor and who's actually in the Uncharted series... Um, you know, yes, I, I can tell, I can usually tell that's him. He has a great range, so sometimes I can't tell it's him. But, you know, I, I can tell it's him. It's it's, it's awesome. Yes, you know, uh, Steve Blum, everyone recognizes Steve Blum. Uh, everyone recognizes Laura Bailey, everyone who is also in this series as uh, as Nadine, of all people. You know, you can recognize uh, you know, most of the big names. But I don't recognize Nolan North. Like, when I hear the voice that he presents, all I'm thinking of is Nathan Drake. And that hasn't been helped by actually playing through these games now. So now it's just, like, permanently affixed to that. Um, I would go look up some other things Nolan North has been in, but I actually still have no internet because of the hurricane thing I mentioned earlier. So uh, I'll assume he's in something, and I'll assume you people will tell me all about all the roles he's been in when we get there. But I do want to give overall praise... The voice acting in was good not just for the main characters. This is something I usually praise Bioware, of all people, about, and Blizzard. Uh, the, both companies understand that random characters who have one or two lines still need to have good voice acting. Because if you have, if you put, I mean, it makes sense to put all your good voice actors on the main characters. That does make a degree of sense, but... How many games have we seen where that you know there's decent voice acting for one or two or three characters, and then everyone else is generic Bob Forty Seven, who is also voicing thirty seven other generic characters, so they all sound the same. Bolivian, excuse me. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, it, it takes you out of it. But here they did a good job, even with the random soldiers, even with you know Eddie. Eddie had a good voice actor, and of course Simon Templeman is always awesome. What 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 could I possibly complain about that? So. That was awesome. Now, I want to talk about... I want to talk about the supernatural elements. Now, that didn't even make me raise an eyebrow. Granted, I'm weird. I'm one of those people who freely mixes sci-fi and fantasy because that just makes sense to me. So, you know, the idea of mixing uh, real life and fantasy doesn't even phase me. I mean, I've seen Indiana Jones. And I'm I'm pretty sure the Tomb Raiders do this as well. So it was just like, yeah, okay. The thing is, I've heard about the su you know, supernatural elements of the Uncharted series for years, but having actually gone through these, I was astonished at how low tier they were. I mean, we're talking about a virus 
that makes someone bestial and gives them, you know, make slightly better than human properties and probably elongates their life Gollum style. But that's kind of it. That is supernatural, but only barely. You know, it's like one step supernatural. It's one tiny little step up. That's like Captain America level. It's nothing. It's probably even less than Captain America level, actually, when you sit and think about it. So it didn't even really phase me. I kept expecting there to be like some, you know, they're talking about this curse that's on this thing. And I'm like, okay, so there's some actual magic involved. No, no, it's, it's just some freaking virus on a corpse that was in a, in a, in a coffin. <laughs> also, Last of Us parallels. Um, <clears throat> so the Descendants, I don't actually have much to say about them. You know, zombies, woo. Uh, you have to have some kind of bad guys that aren't people shooting you with guns. I totally get that. I did find it interesting how Eddie was a almost universally unpleasant individual, and yet not to the point where I wanted him off the camera. You know what I mean? Like, at no point, you know what I'm talking about. There's, there's a difference between a character you hate and a character that you don't want on the screen anymore, that you just get off you know, I don't want you in my show slash movie slash game anymore. You know what I'm talking about. I'm sure everyone listening to this has at least one character they can think of where it's just like, get off the screen. I never had that with Eddie. He was just, you know, a, a lovable bastard kind of a thing. And I did find it very interesting how when the Descendants started actually attacking, he, without hesitation, started helping Drake to fight them. This is something that would actually be paralleled later in the second game with Flynn. Um, when they were fighting against the Guardians, the other supernatural thing. Now, that was a lot more definitively supernatural, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh, wait, no, I'm not. I actually don't have any more thoughts about Uncharted 1. I'm really glad I decided not to split these up, because this would probably be like a five-minute video. I mean, really, I, what else do I say about Uncharted 1? I It was fun, but ultimately forgettable. Didn't really catch me. Navarro was interesting, I guess. I mean, I this start, this is a thing that would eventually become a trend, as I discovered. So it's like, the whole game, Roman, you know, Simon Templeman, is the bad guy. And he's the rich businessman who's, who's brutal, and he's got this private army and all that stuff. And we've got Eddie the Mook and Navarro, who I had to look up his name because I don't remember them ever really talking about him in the game. Um, and so I'm like, okay, whatever. Also, Navarro was played by Robin Atkin Downs. Da uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, because I'm actually a fan of his work, despite his presentation in Babylon 5. So, which, which is funny, because he also played Talbot in uh, 3, and basically the same kind of role. But I'm getting off topic. The point being, Navarro is just like this other guy who's like, no, no, we'll find it, it'll be worth it, it'll be worth it. Hey, boss, why don't you open the thing? And the moment he said that, I was like, okay, when did you become the villain? That was almost exactly what, what, I mean, I didn't say it out loud, but that was what was in my thoughts. I was like, when did you become the villain? Because then he opens it, and then he gets infected, and then he gets shot, and he's like, yep. Do you have any idea what this is worth? And he's right. I mean, that's the kind of thing that would actually be almost invaluable under the right circumstances. Never mind weaponizing this thing. Think about what this could be from a pharmaceutical perspective or a scientific perspective. It's okay, though, because it ended up at the bottom of the ocean where it probably should have been. Anyways, so that's the first game. Then we get to the second game. Now, let me go ahead and say that I get why the second game is so praised. I really do. 
the narrative of the second game was very smart. Now, this is something I don't get to talk about a lot of my show, which is funny, uh, given what my show is. When I say smart narrative, when I say smart writing, smart dialogue, what I mean is the script, in terms of either dialogue or the construction of events, treats you like you have a brain. In other words, I can most easily describe what smart scripts are by explaining the opposite. And I bet you will know what I talk about when I'm saying this, because a, a dumb script will walk up to you and it'll be like... Uh, let me, hang on, let me give you an example here really quick. Um, I'll have to make up an example because I can't think of one. Uh, so, you're here, you know, the party is here, and the enemy is over there, and they notice that there's like some red barrels and they're about to explode or whatever, right? And so a smart script will, will have the camera kind of pan over briefly... No need to focus on it, just briefly, and have the character look over there, kind of get a huh expression, and then do something to make those explode. I know this is a terrible example, but let me explain what a dumb script will do, because what a dumb script will do will be like, okay, see that over there? Camera pans, camera fixates on the red things, maybe even zooms in. Okay, you see there's these red barrels over there. What we're going to do is we're going to blow them up, because as you know, no, I'm sorry, that's too far, but even a, even a well-done dumb script will do the thing where it's like this is what we're going to do this is how we're going it treats the audience as if they're not picking up on things as if they're not paying attention or as if they're dumb that's actually why i call them dumb scripts because it's written to to treat the audience as if they're dumb whereas a smart script is written to treat the audience as if they're smart and there's a lot of scenes in the second game in uncharted 2 i don't know any other subtitles so don't ask me um <laughs> There's a lot of scenes in Uncharted 2, which really came across as smart. Probably my bet, the absolute best example of this is when Chloe, uh, during our second flashback, uh, comes into the room and is just like, the two... How do I put this? A dumb script would bother to exposit. A dumb script would sit there and say, okay, so as you know, Chloe and, and, and Nathan Drake used to be a thing, and they're connected, and they're working together, and Flynn is kind of, you know, blah, 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 you know, all that kind of a thing. Instead, they just interact with each other in a natural way that the two kind of characters would interact with, and so we still get the exposition. Uh, I believe it was Pyromancer on one of my recent uh, streams was talking about this exact concept. He was saying you need to have exposition, and I agreed with that. But there is this, there's this way to do good exposition. You don't have to treat us like we're idiots. You can just have two characters interact naturally the way they would, and we will pick up those pieces by ourselves. And the, the second game does a lot of that throughout the course of the game. Now... I do have to admit I am quite a fan of Claudia Black in general, so seeing her as Chloe was certainly awesome. Although, quick question, was it just me or is something really wrong with her eyes in the whole second game? That wasn't a problem in the third, but in the second game, there was just every time I looked at her eyes, I was like, is she an alien? I mean, we've already got supernatural stuff, so okay, I'm with it. She's an alien, okay, whatever. <clears throat> also, Steve Valentine as the villain, that kept weirding me out. Like, he's done a bunch of roles over the years, but I just kept hearing Alistair from Dragon Age. I was like... I, I couldn't picture Alistair being this much of a colossal dickbag, you know? It, it was weird. Hang on just a second. Ah, there. Anyways. Now, I do say there's a lot of good exposition. There's a lot of good storytelling. 
couple other things I want to talk about in two. First of all, the overall narrative flow is weird. And three and I, I three and four both did this as well. I guess this is just kind of a, a a thing for the series as a whole. Although one didn't do this, but like so, we start off on the train. Okay, that makes sense. Action action start. Then he passes out. Then we go into a flashback to get some exposition. Okay. Then we go back to the train. Okay, this is kind of weird. I'm not sure why we're back at the train now. Maybe we needed another action sequence in the first act, I guess. Then we go back to flashback, and we stay in flashback for half the game. <laughs> and then we get all the way caught up, and it finally gets to the point where they start talking about a train, and I'm like, oh, oh, they're finally catching up to present time. Holy crap, it took so long to get there. <laughs> it's just weird the way they do that. But aside from the overall narrative flow, I was initially worried that they were going to start pulling more cutscene heaviness into. I, I, I was completely wrong, of course. But the first flashback, if you remember, and, and arguably the second flashback, were just cutscene. No actual gameplay. And I'm like, okay. You know, I, I don't mind watching cinematics in my movies, obviously, or in my games, obviously. But, uh, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier... There is a distinction there between a cinematic game and a cinematic. But then it immediately was like, okay, now there's some actual gameplay. So all those fears were laid to rest. So, woo. What I really don't understand, though, and I really want to know how many other people feel this way, and I can say that I even had this note back in two, and having played through all four, I still have this exact same feeling. Is it me? Or does Drake have, or I guess I should say Nolan North, have far more interesting, natural, and dynamic chemistry with Claudia Black slash Chloe than with Elena? Is I'm, I'm honestly curious. How many? I would love to hear your thoughts. Because as they were going through and as they were adventuring, you know, there's that banter thing I mentioned in the, in the background dialogue. It was so much more natural and fluid between Chloe and Drake than it ever was between Elena and Drake. And there's this wonderful scene where Elena's there with cameraman, I'm doomed, and they're, you know, talking, and then Chloe walks up, and is like, okay, we gotta go, we gotta go. And she just looks at him and says, oh, oh, she broke your heart. She's just, she picks up on it immediately. And this is interesting because I feel like this is both in character and out. I feel like Nolan North and Claudia Black have good natural chemistry. And I believe the characters as written, who know each other fairly well, and actually do honestly care about each other, obviously, have very natural chemistry as well. And so it just, the two just clicked. And I'm not saying I'm shipping them. Actually, quite the contrary. I think they worked better when they were not a romantic pairing. But, you know? <laughs> anyways, anyways. So then we've got, uh, it, it, there's some really s strange scenes that all kind of worked surprisingly well for me. Uh, one, another one that comes to mind immediately is when she rushes in, bringing Flynn with her, and he's like, ah, oh, I'm going to get you. And then she rescues them. <laughs> and what I love about that is they don't try to play it for artificial drama, which would have been easy to do. Instead, everyone, Sully and, and Drake and her, all pick up immediately on what's going on. It's like... Oh, okay. Yep. Well, see you around. Have fun, Chloe. Wee. What I don't fully understand is why. See, 
I came up with a reason, but it's kind of a flimsy one. My general justification for her trying to portray herself as still being on, you know, the enemy side was to have access to their resources and to be able to, you know, basically easier to deal with the enemy when you know where they are and what they're doing and how they're doing it. And of course, they're assisting you without meaning to because they brought all the hardware so you can steal it or use it or piggyback off of their efforts, right? That kind of a thing. So that kind of made a degree of sense to me. What I... But that seems like a really vague risk for something this horrible. Now, I have to look up his name. Lazarevich, there we go. Because this is probably my single biggest complaint about 2. You'll notice I barely talked about the characters in 1. That's because most of the characters are recurring ones, so I'll be talking about them more later. Um, but it's also because I just had nothing to say about them. And this is going to be a little bit of a recurring trend. With one exception... I don't have a lot to say about the villains of the Uncharted series, and Lazarevich is probably the pinnacle poster child for that, for me personally. Now, it's weird because he had a lot of screen time, far more than Roman did, or, uh, look up his name, Navarro. <laughs> Guy, I had to look up his name. Far more screen time than Navarro or Eddie, but Eddie was more memorable of the villains, so point being, uh, <laughs> Lazarevich, I keep having to look up his name, did have a lot of screen time, but none of it was memorable. He came across... Like, I have a note here, and I usually do these things in my note-taking. I'll write down my thoughts when I have them, and then I'll leave, like, a little... So that later on I can go back and fill that up, because I think, well, I'm thinking this now, but maybe by the time I've beaten the game, I'll think something different. But there's just a blank space there, because what I have written down is Lavarazic is a typical Bond villain, slash, 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 you know, in other words, come back to this, but I never came back to it. I never had anything else to add to it. He is a completely typical Bond villain. He's kind of boring, in my opinion. He's got this whole, you know, ah, weakness is a, is a fear, ah, we must be evil and malicious, that is the only way that we can strive and be oh, great men, and I shall fulfill destiny by becoming this invincible, Like, I'm thinking about him, the only scene he had, which I found to be truly memorable, was his first scene where he, because I actually kind of like that scene, he, he come, the, the goon comes up and says, this man was caught stole, stealing from you. And he picks up the relic, he's like, you, you betrayed me for this? And just tosses the relic away because it's so worthless, and then stabs him to death. I liked that scene, that was good. It's like, really, you're, you're, like, like it, it portrayed it as if there was some, some depth there, some intelligence there. You're, you're going to betray me over, over pebbles? After what I'm paying you? After what we're going for? Really? Okay, stab, stab. We'll just we'll just kill you. We'll move on. Whatever. But it never developed from there. Um, let me look down my notes here. So, <laughs> also there were Nazis in the first game. Uh, in the past, obviously. Past tense. And there's Nazis in the second game. What's with all the Nazis? There's a great... So... I mentioned that I love the, the chemistry between Chloe and Drake. What's funny, though, is for all the romantic connotations there, I really don't feel like it's a romantic chemistry. If anything, I do feel... I can't believe I'm saying this. I do feel Elena and Drake romantically fit a little bit better together in the fact... I don't know how to put this, but they're both stupid. In a good way. Uh, stupid's probably the wrong word. 
Let's go with hopelessly naive. Ah, that's still the wrong word. See, the thing is, and I'm not sure what to call this, it takes a very special type of person to know that you're not going to accomplish, like you probably won't accomplish something, to know that you're probably going to get yourself killed, to know that no one cares. There's this brilliant quote by Chloe, the world does not care about you or what you've done. And, and that's totally accurate. Chloe is, is a lot more hardened, a lot more bitter, and a lot more realistic than both Drake or uh, Elena are. But the thing is, and especially as we find out in both 3 and 4, Drake's that way too. The difference, the difference between Nate and between Chloe is that Chloe has accepted that, where Nate fights against it constantly. He knows the world doesn't care, but screw the world. He knows that he's probably not going to succeed, but he has to try, you know. There's a weird sort of, it's not even a naivete because he knows what he's getting into. And it's not stupidity because he's not un unaware of what's going on or not unintelligent. So I don't actually know what to call about that. It's the, the weird slice of, I'm fully cognizant of how stupid and how bitter and dark and cynical the world is, but I'm still going to try. It's almost a weird form of defiance. And Elena has that too. She had that in the first game as well, actually. That that will to, no, I'm going to keep going. No, I'm going to keep going. Well, but such and such and such and such. That's great. I'm going to keep going. But you, no, it's okay. I got a gun. I can handle this. Hey, I'm going to break you out. Let me, let me just get, 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 get the Jeep really quick here. You know? <laughs> I don't know. So then we have the final boss fight with a guy with a shotgun who is invincible. Oh, right. I wanted to talk about the supernatural. So 2 is probably the one that came closest to actually supernatural. There's a tree somewhere, which is apparently Yggdrasil, or whatever they called it in the, in the game. I don't actually remember. And Yggdrasil, Yggdrasil, I've actually heard it pronounced that way as well, is uh, the, the tree of life. It's got this sap, which, is, which has two unique properties. The first is that it's explosive, burns, and the second is that it, it's basically the fountain of youth. I mean, how do you summarize that? You know, obviously it keeps people alive far longer. It, it literally healed uh, Lazarevich's wounds on his arm and his face in seconds. His bombing burn wounds from what, a couple years prior or something like that? From when uh, they thought he was dead? That's pretty impressive. And that is legitimately supernatural. At that point, it's like, yeah, okay, that's basically magic juice. And as we find out, thanks in part to the Guardians, it pretty much instills a need to continue defending it in it, like a, a sort of a biological defense mechanism, if you will. Which I suppose means it's not quite supernatural to the point of magic. But that kind of science or that kind of biology, is, uh, we're, we're blurring some lines at that point. But as usual, that didn't bother me. If anything, I was totally cool with that. It's like, ah, finally, some actually supernatural elements was basically my reaction. And it took all the way until we got to the point where we were like, okay, here's here's the juice and here's what it does. Because they spent this whole time talking about this, this horrible thing and it'll be so horrible if he finds it. And everyone involved is just like, you're kidding, right? Like, how bad could it be? Oh, no, he'll get more treasure. Or he'll find some stupid ruin or relic. But, of course, I have seen Indiana Jones and I know how that works, so I was kind of expecting something like this. That brings us to... Oh, actually, really quick. Really quick thing. I just want to say that René Abergenois was awesome. It was great to hear him again. Uh, the moment I heard him, I was like, Dude! Toto! Um, 
He's good. He does some good voice work. I like him. Nothing else to add. Moving on. So, I want to talk about Drake briefly here, because I only have one quick note to talk about Drake, and that's the fact that in the overall game feel, it felt like they were trying to make an Indiana Jones, but not Indiana Jones. To explain what I mean by that, and I've done this before myself, so this is speaking a little bit from personal experience, and I've seen other writers do this too. You sit down, it's like, I really want to make a character like such and such, but I don't just want to copy-paste it. So I'm going to take the ideas of the concept and then I'm going to add some additional things that deliberately go against the original concept to try and establish it as something separate. Sometimes this works and sometimes this doesn't. In Drake's case, it felt like they were deliberately trying to make him an anti, you know, Professor Jones. You know, he's not some, he's certainly smart and he knows his history and he knows his Latin, but he's not Indiana Jones. A lot of people tend to forget that Indy is a professor and actually kind of a stuffy individual and kind of, you know, got that whole, yeah, I'll go out and adventure thing, but ultimately he's still interested in getting, you know, this belongs in a museum is a quote of his for a reason. Drake is far more treasure hunting, glory hound, I'm doing this because I love doing it, you know, and frankly a little bit more selfish and self-centered and more of a negative person. And of course, there's just random cussing interspersed throughout the, the series, which has always, always felt a little bit forced in. I know, I know, I'm a huge prude. And everyone hates me for that. But I, I legitimately felt that the cussing that was in the Uncharted series just kind of felt artificial, you know? Like it was just tossed in rather than an actual byproduct of dialogue. Anyway, so let's move on to the third game. Because the third game, once again, does some narrative skipping. Now, the third game probably has the weakest plot of, of the four, actually, in my opinion. But I am totally okay with that. As I mentioned earlier in my, in my preamble, I feel like 3 and 4 feel naturally cohesive together. Like, le- I could legitimately believe that Uncharted 3 was the first game in the series, and Uncharted 4 was the sequel of, of the blockbuster game. That, that, that actually is how it felt to me. The first two games, I, I don't know how to explain this anymore. They just don't feel like they fit with the second two games. And I have a feeling this is one of the reasons, uh, I like, like there's some contention about this, that some people dislike 3 and 4 because they're not like 1 and 2 and vice versa. I don't know, I'm, I'm just, I'm speaking as an outsider here. Again, I've just never really ended the Uncharted series until I finally played them yesterday and today. So, 3's plot is definitely weak, but it's a lot stronger in two elements I enjoy. First, character. A lot more emphasis is made on characterization and actual character development. Because there wasn't really any character development in 1 or 2. A lot of characterization. We saw a lot about Drake. saw a lot about Chloe. It's kind of it. And then in (laughs) 3... Well, no, really. Because in 3, we learn backstory. And that's the other thing they develop. Characters, characterization and character development. And backstory, setting, world, plot. Or not plot, excuse me. The opposite of plot. The, 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 the backdrop. We learn about uh, where Drake came from. We, we get an insight into his origins. We get an insight into why he acts the way he acts. This, this sort of need to prove himself. In my opinion, the arc of Uncharted 3 is all about Nathan Drake needing to prove himself to himself. This is all about him. And it it does get a little bit into things like pride and ego and vanity. But the overall idea, and I, I understand this from a personal perspective, and I imagine a lot of you do too as well. 
we never really know what we're like until we're in the moment, right? And the desire to really prove who you are or prove your worth, it doesn't matter if anybody else sees that, right? It matters if you know who you are, whom you are, what you are. And these are the kind of things that you can only really prove under certain types of circumstances. And honestly, I feel like that was Nathan's primary goal going throughout the entirety of the third game. I mean, he keeps give, making excuses about this. <sighs> I digress. Moving on, because uh, I want to build up to a scene. So, let's go ahead and talk about the villains of three really quick. So, first of all, <laughs> I do like the villains of three a lot better than one or two. First of all, uh, Talbot. Hmm. Talbot is a classic type 3 villain, but I don't understand him. Like, Robin Atkin Downs, again, uh, does a decent job of portraying this slime ball, but there's aspects of his character that make it feel like he's crushing on Kate? Right? Yeah, Kate. That's right. <laughs> Miss Monroe. Like, like, like he's legitimately, oh, I'll, I'll do anything for you, missus. There, that, there's scenes throughout the whole game, especially when she dies, spoiler alert, that really make me think that he was just idolizing or worshipping or whatever. And I have no idea where that came from or why. I, it's just a weird aspect of his personality. But he also kept being... Well, let's just say that he is a, a classic Type 3 villain, and really I don't have much else to add to that. So let's just go ahead and move on. Um, I do want to talk about the villains, the, the, the secret society that was being presented in the third game. So, <laughs> the secret society, I love it. Um, there's a scene in the flashback. Again, the narrative jumps all over the place. Just The plot doesn't even really start to like halfway through the game, but the narrative is all over the place. So during the, the, the first flashback sequence... Or I guess the second flashback sequence. Whatever. When you're playing young Drake and you're being chased by the suited goons of the secret society, one of them was willing to kill a kid. That scene never really left me. That scene was horrifying in a very quiet way. The way he's just like, just close your eyes, there will be no pain. What in God's name is wrong with you? You know, what you, I, I, what? The, and it's not just the fact that. See, you could make arguments for well, he's not just a kid; he's a competent kid, and he's an enemy, and you know, blah blah blah. You know, and there are certainly statements that can be made that you can't always, you know, make an exception just because a kid. You know, that argument is used a little bit too much. Oh, they're just a kid, you know. But the absolute empty callousness that was on display. The fact that to the guy, shooting this kid meant nothing. It wasn't like he was torn up about it. It wasn't like he was like, oh man, I'm going to have to, oh, this is terrible. But I have to because you're the enemy. Instead it was just, it'll be okay. <laughs> what? What? I also have to say though, just getting back to Kate here for a moment. The, the woman, I hope I'm saying her name right. I can't look it up. I have no internet. Um, I hope that I found her a more interesting villain almost universally because she This is going to sound weird 
but she felt like less of a villain so much of, of an antagonist. Talbot felt like a villain. Several of the goons felt like villains, but her? This is all just business to her. Now, I know that's a type of villain, but what I mean is there are many instances where she was just like, all right, let's go. You know, let's keep going. There's no need to kill... She was upset when Cutter killed uh, the two of... Uh, Sully and, and Drake, and granted, it's not because she has some kind of sanctity of life or cares about their lives or anything like that, but because of the fact that it was so unnecessary to be so violent and to draw attention like that. It was sloppy. So she's not exactly a good person, but she has that extra dynamic of being someone who is just focused on her goal. I find myself wondering, though, about her goal, because let's talk about that for a second. She obviously wants the the secret of the hallucinogens, and that's kind of a recurring theme, you know, the, the darts they use on Cutter, the one they use on Drake, and, of course, the one that, uh, or the, 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 the water, which happens later on in the, in the game. And, of course, they go after the brass, you know, Solomon's genie lamp, gin lamp, excuse me. What I don't, what I want to know is what exactly were they going to do with that? I mean, they obviously already have access to some pretty powerful and, you know, hard-to-detect hallucinogens. Why do they need this extra thing? Is that to study? Were there actually gins involved? And that's probably the only thing that is I, I both praise and regret about... Uh, I almost said Saints Row 3. About Uncharted 3. It's be, I just finished the Saints Row series for that rumination. It's because when I look at the Uncharted series... So I'm just going to go and give it away. There's like no supernatural elements at all in 3 or 4. None. Completely normal, ordinary, mundane stuff. And that's fine. With, with one exception, which I'm, I haven't actually talked about yet. Um, but in three, it's normal because it's unresolved. They talk about the djinn. They talk about the power of the djinns. And of course, we have that gameplay sequence. And that's part of the praise I give. Because when I started fighting people, and you know, when, it, when an eclipse happened, and I started fighting people who were possessed by the djinns, I, I took it completely in stride. No, I'm serious. The game caught me. At no point did I think that he was hallucinating. I was just like, yep. No, this is consistent. I mean, the Guardians, right? The Descendants? This, this makes total sense to me. But then it was just a hallucination. And we never find out because we never opened the bottle. So we have no idea what was going on with the gins. That's just kind of left there dangling. Now, the former is brilliant because it's a gameplay thing. I actually lost on a particular fight to the gins, And you die, and you, you have to reload if that happens. And that's brilliant. It's an aspect of storytelling through gameplay. And it's part of why it caught me. I was like, okay, obviously, you know, right? It wasn't until the hallucination started warping the terrain and people started literally vanishing and the sun started moving and he started sitting. I was like, okay, he's, he's hallucinating. But up until that moment, the game had caught me and I was willing to go with that. But then it's just left completely unresolved. And to my knowledge, and I looked into this uh, briefly with what little snippets of internet I had yesterday morning, to, to, to try and determine if there was any, like, consequences of this. Nope. There's there's no resolution, to my knowledge, of the gin situation. It's just... Anyways. So, the banter. The banter between characters was getting a lot noticeably better in 3. And the dialogue flowed a lot more naturally in several sections in 3, which I give huge credit to. Um, I also want to especially credit one particular individual and that would be Cutter, Charlie Cutter, or Cutter Charlie, however you want to say that. I just want to say, 
Cutter was awesome. Cutter might actually be my favorite character in this series, and I mean that with total sincerity. The only the only con contestants for that would be Sully and probably Chloe, I'd say. Cutter was awesome. He was exactly what he needed to be. He was a little bit of a of a archetype because he was the guy who looks dumb and acts dumb and is smart and knows how to put things together very quickly and very smoothly and is a pretty decent guy while appearing very coarse, you know, that kind of a contrasting individual. It is a classic archetype, but he pulls it off brilliantly. I wish I could look up the the voice actor for this guy because he did a great job and I loved every scene he was in. In fact, I kept getting clenched up because I'm like, oh, God, they're going to kill Cutter. Because he's this brand new character they've just introduced. And, and spoiler alert, he's not in 4, although they mention him. And I'm like, oh, God, no, don't, don't, please don't kill him. Because they won't kill Drake, but they can kill this guy. And I'm like, ah, oh, no, but thankfully they don't. <laughs> that thing with the tower and the fire, that was messed up. I got to admit, I would be with Cutter on that. I would do the same thing. Very messed up, though, what, what happened there. Um, also... I just want to say that the Eastern France mission can go burn in a fire. And pretty much every other mission that involves those freaking ant spider things. I don't know what they were, and I don't want to. And I don't want to think about that anymore. So we're going to think about fluffy kittens. Alright, now that we're better. Oh god, they're being eaten by the spider things! No, no, it's worse, it's worse! Seriously though, th those missions can go burn. I was actually so startled the first time. Uh, I had to do the run, the, the sudden run away from them. Because, you know, you get away and it's like, okay, we made it away. Oh, God, they're coming in through the ceiling. And I was like, oh, crap. And, and yeah, bad things happened. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So this game, 3, specifically does two very powerful and important things. First of all, it helps flesh out characters. I already talked about that. But most notably, Nate and Sullivan. In hindsight and retrospect, we now understand why the two are so damned loyal to each other, and will remain so. There was a scene in one where Elena flat out says, "How much do you really trust this guy? You know, how much? How much do you think he? He? I mean, this is really suspicious." Now, my reaction at the time was, "Okay, he's he might be a betrayer," because I I didn't know the series yet. But Drake's reaction was, "No, nah, he's not a traitor." Total confidence in that. In retrospect, that makes perfect sense, given 3 and 4, given what we learn about their past together. Because the way they connected was actually quite natural and quite, you know, father-sonly. It's, it's, it's actually awesome, because 3 ends with that wonderful speech. Where he's like, look, just for once in your life, just for once, you know, stop being a wise-ass. <laughs> I never had a son. I never wanted a son until you came up, you know. The dynamic, the father-son dynamic there has always been there, but it was very powerful. I don't have any better way to say that. I was actually moved, not to tears, but to emotion. I actually felt quite a bit through the third game in the dynamic between Drake and Sully. It was awesome stuff. And we also find out uh, more about Drake's own motivations. I already talked about his need to prove himself and his desire to, to, to showcase that. We get little snippets of his backstory. You know, his his mother, father, both dead. She committed suicide. He died. And uh, raised at a Catholic church thing. There's a term for that. And, um, and I like that. And I like that. But... What I love about it 
is that it all fits perfectly with the character we know. He's, he's constantly wisecracking, of course, because what else do you do when you don't know who you are? Notice that he wisecracks a lot less in 4. He still does it as a defense mechanism every now and again, usually around villains or the bad guys or whatever. But he's a lot more comfortable with himself in 4. And I think that's a direct result of having found himself in 3. I also want to say, there's a scene in 3 that's it's actually my favorite scene in 3. It's the scene where the lady, who I believe's name is Kate, has fallen into the sand. And Sullivan's like, dude, what are you doing? We gotta get out of here. And Talbot's like, no, you can't leave her to die. That scene is actually an excellent character study. It is a classically constructed scenario. By which I mean, that's the kind of thing where you as a writer have set up a specific scenario that is designed to not have a good outcome. It is a dilemma. And you are supposed... The, it, the point is not solving the dilemma. The point is how you react to the dilemma. The point is how you respond to it. And we see four people and and how their characters are. We, we see them laid bare in that scene. No, no masks, no wise-assing, no fronting. In her, we see someone who truly believes in that concept of accomplishing greatness. There's always been kind of a trend of that throughout the course of the game as, as she's been on screen now and again. This is someone who, for all of her machinations, believes in a concept of, I don't want to use the word destiny, but more like accomplishment. This is a woman who believes in accomplishment and improving yourself and in... manifesting your will upon the world. And this helps to elaborate upon what she was doing. So she she lays that bare. All of this, all of everything, doesn't matter. Who are you, Nathan Drake? That is the question she asks. We see who Talbot is in that scene. Because he just goes around, oh no, she's going to die. Seriously, I actually wanted to slap him a little bit. He does nothing. For all his supposed devotion... He just stands there helplessly because he is not a man of action. He is not the kind of person who can achieve great things. He's a toady. And we see that presented in that scene. We see Sullivan. Now Sullivan, well, he's not exactly a bad man and he's not exactly a good man. He's a pretty nice slice of the middle. But he is a realist more than anything else. And he lays that on the table during that scene. We've got to get out of here there's no time. Come on. Let's go. It's not out of malice. He does not want to murder her. He does not want her to suffer. Even though he's he has plenty of reasons to have that grudge, that is not on his mind. His mind is on the one thing that really matters to Sullivan. Well, two things, excuse me, that really matter to him. His son, Nathan Drake, and practicality. Come on. Let's go. And we see what kind of person Nathan Drake is. Because Nathan Drake is also not a good man. And I don't mean that as an insult. It's a wonderful flavor to him, actually. A good man wouldn't have hesitated. A good man wouldn't have thought about it. A good man would have dived forward to save his bitter enemy. Because that's what a good person does. An evil person 
would have, you know, mocked it, mocked her, or laughed, or been, uh, tossed a cheesy one-liner and walked off or whatever. But Nathan Drake is neither an evil person nor a good person. He's, he's a guy. He thinks about it, he hesitates, and then he makes the effort. He does the best he can, and he fails. Just like real people do. Now, this is when I'm going to segue a little bit. Oh, by the way, quick aside. What is it with the main villains being killed before the end? I think Four's the only one that doesn't do that. Oh, no, that's not true. Two did that, too. Because Zivizabiza was also the last boss. But anyways, because Talbot is actually the last boss. I find that actually amusing because, again, I didn't have any particular rancor for her. But I wanted to beat the crap out of Talbot. And then I got to. Yay. Quick question before I move on. Why was the water tainted? To my knowledge, they never discussed that. There's two implications, one mundane and one not. The mundane implication is that whatever's in the brass vessel, I don't know my chemistry that well, so maybe brass itself will cause hallucinogenic properties in water. I don't think it will, but, you know, I don't know. But, you know, maybe there was something in the, in the, the actual vessel that was tainting the water, or maybe something that was inside the vessel, like the gin, was tainting the water. And, of course, the gin itself could just be a metaphor, like that freaking virus in the first game, right? So, I mean, there's possibilities here. We'll never know. But I want to talk about the fact that Nathan Drake is superhuman. Yeah, you heard me. <laughs> it's actually funny to me. I was, I was reading an interview uh, from the first game, how they they felt that... You know, big, super strong heroes were boring, and they wanted to do a guy who was constantly at the edge of his capacity. I find that hysterical that that was their intent, because I have never felt that way in all four games. Quite the contrary, Nathan Drake so casually does so many things, ripping through... I mean, I know this is gameplay and not lore, but in gameplay, Nathan Drake all right, let me just... The, the parkour and the jumping sections, he does jumps that are crazy. He survives drops that are insane with just a roll. He, he's, he's doing the Assassin's Creed thing, which if you remember, I posited uh, a legit theory that in lore, those of, of, of the particular bloodline of the, those people were literally superhuman in the Assassin's Creed series. So I just kept getting the same impression from Drake itself. And again, I'm okay with that. You know, I don't mind supernatural elements within my stories. It's just... It's funny that the intent was such the opposite. I don't know. But then we get to four. Now, I have the most notes about four. Most of this is character stuff. Four was by far the most down-to-earth story of the four. And it's probably funny that it was my favorite by far. The I do want to say one thing, though. Two was a better script than 4. Or I should say, was a was a smarter story. The dialogue in 4 was better, but the plot and the narrative construction in 2 was better, in my opinion. Because the story in 4 meanders a bit and is too obvious. There's too many elements of 4 story. It's not to the point of dumb writing. They don't treat you like an idiot. Rather, instead, they just beat you over the head with the same point over and over and over again. And it got to the point where but there's literally a scene right towards the end where they're in the burning vessel and there's like, who are those two? It's the two frickin' pirates. And, you know, uh, Avery and uh, two. Two? Two? God, I don't remember his name. His number one man. And they've killed each other and it's like, okay, I get it! You've been hammering this point in the entire game! I get it! 
You don't have to keep re-emphasizing. <sighs> I mean, I'm as guilty of that as much as anyone, but yeesh. Moving along. But part of the reason 4 was so awesome for me was it was a very down-to-earth story, a very O'Brien story. While there's certainly some, you know, large-scale stuff, this is not a fight to save the world. This is not trying to stop a, a horrific virus from getting out. This is not trying to prevent... Um, you know, the, the, the sap of immortality from getting into the hands of a world-conquering psychopath. This is not about preventing a world-spanning conspiracy organization from getting access to a new superweapon. This is just about the goal and search for that pirate treasure for Rafe and for Sam. Because see, here's the thing. Three, if we're going to go with poker analogies, because for some reason it, it seems to fit perfectly in my head, three was all about learning how to play with the hand you're given. And that's one of the first things you learn when you start to study poker. I used to play poker a lot, uh, mainly uh, seven-card stud or Texas Hold'em, but, you know. So one of the first things you learn when you really start studying poker is this is your hand, accept it. You know, there's nothing you can do about this. All you can do now is to decide what you do with the hand you're dealt. You know, and we see that with Sullivan. We see that with Drake. We see that with Elena. There was a lot of good elements of that throughout the course of three. Four, by contrast, four is about knowing when to fold. Four is about knowing when to back off and saying, yeah, no, this is my limit. I'm done. And we, and again, the problem is I can't, I'm not going to sit here and list every example of that in the game because it's everything. It's all the examples. <laughs> now, let's go through this. Let's talk about the graphics first. I know that's a weird place to start. Video games have been pushing the graphics bubble since about the PS2 era, and especially on PC games. So after a certain, you know, for a while their graphics were more important than other aspects of development, to the point where there were very pretty games that were crap coming out for many, many years. Some would argue that's still happening. I don't quite agree with that, but point remaining. Uncharted 4 is the first game in a long time that I've played, and I have just sat there and just, wow, because it is genuinely pretty. And I don't just mean in terms of fantastic vistas. The thing that really caught me most is the faces. I mean, the motion capture in general has been pretty good in the first three games, especially the third one. The motion capture in four is a work of art, especially those faces. There are so many scenes, which I wish I could just pause and show you right now, where there's a character who just, you know, someone else says something, and the character goes, you know, it's it's. I'm I'm actually exaggerating it too much to to make sure you can see it because I know I'm I'm kind of small on the screen here. But the point is, they give a a visual acknowledgement of what the other character just said, just like a person would. And it's a lot of stuff, and it's a lot of subtlety, and it's it's brilliant. It is astonishing the level of detail and how smooth and how fantastic it looks. I give huge huge praise to that. It it really helped pull me into the game way more than the first three games. I also want to give absolute huge, huge praise to the the voice acting in 4. The gentleman who plays Rafe, who is the only truly interesting villain in the series, in my opinion, I looked him up. I managed to look up. I had like five minutes of internet, 
well, well, I, I shouldn't even say that. I had five minutes of phone internet. You know, my LTE was actually up. And I'm like, okay, quick, I need to look up this guy who plays Wraith. Okay, he's been in nothing. I have no idea who this guy is. He's like, a, he's not a prolific actor. He's not in anything. He's just some random guy who's been in a couple movies I've never seen. Oh, and also he was the Galaga guy in Avengers, and that's it. I am astonished at how much he just nailed the part. Because he did. I mean, that was him. That was his motion caption, and that was his voice, and he nails it. And I'd like to credit that to the directors and voice directors of Uncharted 4. I'm not sure if that's true, but I feel that the voice direction and the direction was nothing short of phenomenal in this game. So, once again, they do the same narrative trick, and then it takes half the game to catch back up to present day. We see a lot more of the backstory of the Drake brothers in this one, and I think that was a really helpful and necessary touch. The beginnings of Drake's starting to do, you know, the whole parkour superhuman stuff, but also the, re the relationship between him and his brother, and the nature of how... how... Drake became the Drake that we saw in flashbacks in the third game. Because that Drake... You know, the, the kid on the street. It's so natural and so logical to see him and see how suspicious he is and how untrusting he is. How he has that, you gotta take care of yourself, no one else cares about you mentality. And it's so, it was actually very awesome to see how Sullivan slowly worked his way through that. Whoops. Sorry, I just realized my AC unit was on. My bad. It's okay, I turned it off before it got going. To see how much effort it took Sullivan to really reach in there and try and crack open that shell of bitterness and cynicism. And I mean, Drake is still kind of a cynical guy, but there's so much more, I'm just going to say this as bluntly as I can, good in him. And I think that's directly as a result of Sullivan, which is fascinating considering Sullivan himself is such a pragmatic, realistic person. It says a lot about the dynamic between the two. But... I'm getting off track. Point is, after seeing all that gold and all that amazing scenes, going back and seeing him at the convent, no, that's the wrong word, the religious place, and seeing how he interacted there and with his brother, speaks so much. There's a scene where he's like, uh, the, the, the nun is like, I, why did you do it? And he's like, well, you know, he took my book. Then that was an acceptable excuse for punching, to which my automatic response was, well, yeah. But I was raised weird. <laughs> but no, um, point being, it's funny because I'm such actually a nonviolent person. Uh, point being that the he, she asked, he, he admits truthfully, because Drake's always been a terrible liar his whole life. It's funny. He admits it wasn't just about the book. But he, he can't tell, he refuses to tell her why, the real reason. Then he sees his brother and immediately tells her the real reason. Excuse me, tells him the real reason. Because people were speaking bad about his dad and about his mom. He even They even cut him off, but he talks about, you know, they say mom's going to hell. And then they cut him off. For those of you not aware of this, there are certain religious sects which preach the idea that someone who commits suicide automatically and without reserve goes to hell. Hence, that kind of a thing in a religious center, when your mother's committed suicide, I mean, that, you could see why that would be a sore point, and why other people would use that to attack you with. And Sam has the right of it. What they're saying, they're only saying because it bothers you. 
Now that means everything right there. And I think that helped to inform some of Drake's character. Because he's right. They're not saying it because they mean it. They're not saying it because they care about what they're saying. They could be saying, you know, fish oil is something that's slimy and slippery. As long as it hurt you, that's all that matters. The words coming out of their mouths don't matter. What matters is their intent. And their intent is to hurt you. And I think that helps to, to put a little bit of that armor around Drake and around and how he, he presents himself. I, I shouldn't even call him Drake, I suppose, because it's an assumed name. But you get the idea. Nate, throughout the course of the games and as he grows up. Because it's true. Most people who are saying things like that say them to hurt you. There's even a scene in 3 where Kate, I really hope I'm getting her name right, is trying to deliberately provoke him regarding Sullivan. Now, by this point, we know for pretty much absolute certainty that no, Sullivan really does have his back and really does care about him. There's, there's no ambiguity there. But that's okay because she's not saying that because she thinks Sullivan's actually bad. She's saying that to hurt him. Thing is, she mis miscalculated on that one because it doesn't hurt him. He's already made peace with that particular bond. And I think that's what helps him to then escape that scene. But I digress. I'm trying to think where to go next. There's a lot of interesting things to talk about in 4. The shift to legal salvage is certainly one of those. What I find amusing about this is this is still in keeping with the knowing when to fold mentality, just in a different thing. Because knowing when to fold doesn't mean you fold immediately. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean you fold the moment things get bad. That's not what it means. It means knowing when to freaking fold. You do it at the right moment. This is probably the only subtle aspect of the theme of Uncharted 4. And this is the only thing I really felt truly caught me. Every now and again when I'm going through a work, there's just one thing that catches me. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to talk about that. This is the thing for Uncharted 4. Because the one true subtlety of the theme is that they folded early. And they shouldn't have. Both Elena and Nate made this compromise for each other. You know, he did it for her. She did it for him. Neither of them wanted it. Neither of them are truly happy or satisfied with this. Now, we get more of his dissatisfaction in obvious ways. When Sam comes back into his life and he zones out looking at the vistas and how he loves this thing, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, he's the one who is a horrible bastard of a husband. I'm sorry, I'm just going to say that. I'll get to that in a second, though. But even her dialogue and her tone indicates she is just as disgruntled with this as he is. She's just coping with it a little bit better. And doesn't have a brother who comes in out of nowhere dragging him back into the game. So neither of them should have folded when they did. And what they end up doing is obviously an acceptable compromise. And there's something else I want to kind of build up to, so let's just leave that there for now. But I do want to talk about this, because Nate's character has always been about his pride. It's one of his most defining character traits. Not the usual aspects of pride. It's about that proving yourself thing. That, that is a form of pride, or pride is a form of that. Take your pick. Um, and a little bit of shame in that. There's this one quote he has, let me earn it. That's a very fascinating quote. And I love that quote because it means so much about what he wants to do. He doesn't want to have things handed to him, after all. 
He wants to actually accomplish something. And so he falls back into the habit when Sam pulls him in way too easily. Let's be honest. I have no doubt at all that he would have not gotten back into the game if not for his brother and the lie his brother told him. I have absolutely no doubt that he would have stayed out of it if not for that fact. But it is also worthy of note that when he got back into the game, he dived into it. He just jumped over that edge. Like, well, I have the excuse now. I no longer have to accept responsibility for this, and I am now free to do what I want. Elena even calls him out on this. I saw your face when you came into this room. You are so excited and so happy. You want this. And he does. Of course he does. So does she. And they do find a nice compromise towards the end, but I'm still building up to that. Thing is, his character arc is kind of already concluded by the time 4 starts. His character development, I mean, there's no additional character development. All we see is that this is a man who was so desperate to have some reason to get back into the life he wants that he's willing to lie to his wife about it. Now, <laughs> I know how cynical real life can be, so lying to your wife might not be a big deal, but it is, again, emphasized many times that he really does actually care about her, and he really does actually love her, and that this lie is not exactly something that is a small deal. It's not like he's agonizing over it, but rather to, to make the point... This is not something he would do lightly for no reason. But he's doing it because he really wants to get back into the game. Sullivan sees that. Sam sees it, although he doesn't want to. We'll get to Sam in a second. <laughs> the reason I call him out on this is because, ultimately, what he did, he did out of fear. If he, I guarantee you, if he had walked up to Elena and said, look, hey, this is my brother. He's, explain, 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 explain. I need to help him find this stupid treasure to save his life. Okay? She would have been like, well, that sucks, and probably been a little emotionally distraught, and then she would have had his back on it. <laughs> Just like she always has. Because, again, what's the thing I mentioned back in 2 that really connects Elena and Drake? They both have that defiance about them. Yeah, the world sucks. Yeah, the world doesn't care. But who gives a damn? I'm still going to do the best I can, even in the face of reality, to try and make things better. You think she wouldn't have helped him like that the moment the reality of the situation was presented? But he lies about it. It's an utterly unnecessary lie. And he himself admits the reason to it. He lied because he was scared about losing her. Not, not to protect her. She can more than handle herself. Probably better than he can in some respects. But rather, he was afraid that this would be a lie because he compromised. He lost his life for her. If he lost her too, what was it all for? I'm not condoning what he did, merely explaining, because he acted out of something very primal that a lot of us can understand. Fear of loss. And that brings me to Sam. I have a note here that says Nadine. I have nothing written by it. I have nothing to say about her at all. 
I'm sorry. I've, I've nothing to say about her. I couldn't come up with a single note. So Nadine's in this game. Moving on. So then we have Sam. Now, <laughs> the line here is amusing. Sam lies to Nate. Nate lies to Elena. But we can tell the differences between the two because of the motives involved. Sam lies to Nate for what amounts to selfish pride and quite a bit of ego and quite a bit of desire to prove himself. See, here's the thing. Drake's story arc, his character development, to be more accurate, has concluded. He has proven what, what kind of a person he is. He knows whom he is. He did it. Sam spent 15 years in prison. He never got to prove himself. He never got to find out what kind of person he really is. So it helps to, and, and again, not condoning, but it helps to explain so much of what Sam is on about the entire game. Because he is so fixated, so obsessed on finding this treasure. It's not even really about the treasure itself that much. I mean, yeah, money's nice. But he makes it so clear in two separate scenes. One, when he's on the cliff edge with Nate and Nadine and uh, Rafe. And the other, when they're trying to leave and he refuses to leave. I gotta finish this. You don't deserve it. You know, those lines make it so clear what's really going on in Sam's head. This is about his family legacy. This is about proving himself. And he has to do it. And now what I find funny is he goes off to prove himself, fails miserably. We have an awesome last boss. I actually want to pause, if I may, just for a moment, to talk about the last boss of four. Probably the first last boss that I've really felt was a really fun, awesome boss fight in the Uncharted series. Because it killed the crap out of me first time, obviously, because it's such a complete shift in gameplay. Having to actually, But having to actually watch where he's attacking. I mean, maybe I just didn't know what I was doing. But, you know, if he's attacking this way, you have to dodge the correct kind of dodge in order to get the hell out of that. And watching that and oh it was so awesome and it was a great set piece you know we're literally fighting surrounded by buried treasure in a burning ship that's about to explode you know and lord knows when it's going to find the powder magazine and on top of that the animation was amazing nate who of course doesn't know sword fighting fights like most people probably would sword fight if they were handed a sword and told to defend themselves large sweeping clumsy strikes with a lot of power behind them. You know, a brawler, basically. And the animation on Reefs was so much more expert. Again, a lot more of a fencer. Not quite fencing, but still someone who actually knows how to utilize a sword properly. It was brilliantly done, and I absolutely adored it. Just, just huge props for that. And again, another section that wouldn't have meant anything if it had just been a cinematic. So we've got this awesome boss fight. And after... After Rafe is <laughs> crushed, that's when Sam proves himself. In the moment, as the ship is starting to descend, as it's burning, and he's pinned, all I've ever wanted was to find this treasure with you. I have to know you made it out. Sam's a bit of a scumbag, to be blunt. The lies he tells and the things he does are selfish and greedy and prideful, I've already mentioned that one. And he's more than willing to not be a particularly nice person if it suits his ends. But there can be no denying that he truly cares about his brother. Not just loves him. There's a brilliant scene I haven't talked about yet. 
early on, and it's it's so it's so wonderful. It's not even subtle; it's just powerful. There's a scene where they're meeting with the woman. I I never caught her name. Forgive me. The old woman. I actually have a note here to write her name down, but I haven't had internet since then. Um, and how you know she was the one who was who sacrificed her life in service of this treasure because she's the know when to fold them. Uh, uh, allegory number five hundred thirty-seven. <laughs> but I digress. There's a scene where she pulls out the gun, and 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 Sam's there, and Sam gets it right in front, right in front of his brother, and she says something, and he says, "No, no, 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 you keep that gun on me." That line was perfect, because that really is Sam. I'm reminded in many ways of a certain character over in the Witcher series. I'm sure some of you know who I'm talking about, because he's not really that great of a person, and he kind of fumbles, and he's kind of not the greatest. And you know, issues, but when chips are down, when things get real, he's got your back. The end, because he does genuinely care. He has a true and strong loyalty to his brother, and I kind of like that. And so, in the moment, we did see what kind of a person he was, because there were two things he really cared about in that moment. I did it, and my brother lived. The two things that really mattered most to Sam was the accomplishment and his brother's life. Then they both get out. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, I'm just going to talk briefly. Two, two quick things here. First, Libertalia. Obvious example, number 783 <laughs> of, of the theme. They all died. Yeah. I did think it was rather well presented. I, I do think there was some good stuff there. And it's actually quite logical. The whole, I'm going to build a utopia, but secretly uh, we're all going to just kill each other kind of a thing. Yeah. <clears throat> Didn't think that one out. I want to give one other small bit of praise. I know I should have mentioned this earlier, but I had this note much further down in my notes, so I forgot about it until now. There's a bit where Nate uh, is, is walking along. He gets a bunch of grime and and dirt on him and then he ends up getting in the jeep and they go through and they end up going through the water and it splashes all over him and he gets out and the grime is gone because it was washed off by the water so he's got some of the dirt and he's still muddy but it's mud now instead of dirt and now he's got the water i just wanted to give huge praise for that tiny little details like that really really help with the polish of this game moving on let's talk about a surprisingly interesting character let's talk about rafe again i give absolutely phenomenal praise to the actor to the to the director the voice director the presentation of Rafe was phenomenal because there's a lot of nuance to his presentation we see someone who so clearly and obviously wants to pretend that he is high society but he isn't he's not like a complete psychopath like Zerizba back in 2 was but instead he's a psychopath restrained he is a spoiled brat, and he knows it, and he hates it. So he hates himself, and he hates his life, but he thinks, well, I have to be better than that. And so he constantly tries to restrain himself. And that comes across so brilliantly in his performance. There's so many scenes. I, I'm not going to just, basically every scene he's in, he's like, yeah, no, you're right, you're right. And he reins himself back in, like, Probably the only scene he really lets out just how deranged he is is what is in the final boss fight. Everything around that, leading up to that, like like when he literally forces Nadine at gunpoint to go in there, 
and dies as a result of all of that really helps hammer in the point of his character. Because at that point, he stops restraining himself at all. He won. He knows where the treasure is. It's right here. He could help Nate get the thing out and leave, or he could kill Nate and try to find his own way out. But he does neither. He's... That's why I don't quite call him a psychopath. That's, I guess that's quite an inaccurate term now that I think about it. It's more like he is a spoiled brat. And a spoiled brat doesn't immediately stab someone. A spoiled brat has to rant at it first. A spoiled brat has to be like, Oh, God, this just isn't fair. And that is basically what he does. He just starts going off on Nate. And he wants Nate to know exactly how much he is pissed off at him and for everything he's done because well he never proved himself did he I actually wrote down the quote because this is a brilliant quote I've had everything handed to me on a goddamn silver platter everything except this I earned this all of it and thus we see his motives laid bare because he had never gotten to prove who or what he was his whole life. He had all this money and all this. There's an, there's an earlier line where he's talking with Sullivan. And you know, Sullivan says, I thought you were handling your parents' business. And he responds quickly, my businesses. I'm handling my businesses. You can tell even then it's just bothering him. How he has, how he's still associated as the guy with the silver spoon in his mouth. It bothers him. And <laughs> it's, it's actually funny, too, because he is super rich already. He's not just rich. He is actually a level up from rich. He is mega rich. He has more than enough money. This treasure, this doesn't mean anything to him. It was, the whole point was always about proving that he could do something, that he could earn something. And Nathan Drake and all his great exploits. And this we see a wonderful parallel between the two characters, because Drake has accomplished amazing, incredible feats and not really gotten anything out of it. I mean, let's be blunt. If you were the kind of person who found El Dorado, who found the Atlantis of the Sands, who had actually discovered the Tree of Life and Shambhala or whatever. Don't you think that person would have some kind of reward for it? But what does Nathan Drake have? He works as a salvage worker alongside his wife. Uh, he does get his wife. That is something worth noting. But as I mentioned, he and her are both fairly unhappy with their lives. He didn't really get a real reward out of all of that, my opinion. This is why he is the opposite of Rafe. Rafe has all the reward, but he didn't have to earn a damn bit of it. And he knows it. He has all this wealth, all this power. He can bring up armies and turn them against their, their leader and, and charge forth and fund the expedition and walk, just walk into this black market thing, drop, drop $500,000 on a worthless freaking cross just because he knows how valuable it is. He can do all of those things. But he didn't earn any of it. He has no praise, no glory, no anything. And this is probably another of those brilliant little subtle touches because the game never draws attention to it. He's short. 
I'm serious. Rewatch the game or replay the game sometime. He's shorter than basically everyone else in the cast. And that's such a wonderful visual metaphor for how he feels. So then he dies, of course. Now, I do like the ending. Obviously, the whole point is you know when to fold, right? Well, if you've got a decent hand, or if you want to keep playing the game, you don't fold, right? I mean, I could go into some extended poker metaphors about how you're going to lose this hand, but you're going to pull the other person into a sense of security so that you can win the next hand kind of thing. But the general idea here, to skip the metaphor, which is getting a little bit too far from the source material, is that they find a nice compromise. And I like that. Nathan Drake actually has a happy ending. He's got his wife. He's got his daughter. They have a life that's not quite what it was but is still fun. They still go exploring. They can still go discovering. They still get to have the life that both of them want. And for once, they actually get some frickin' reward from it. I mean, I, I've looked into houses recently. You know how much a house on the beach costs? <laughs> so I like that. It's a nice way to end everything and end the series as a whole, in my opinion. And I agree that any future games at this point on should not star Nathan Drake. They should go someone under other direction. Like maybe, I'm just spitballing here, Chloe and Nadine. I think that would be a good game. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts about the Uncharted series. I, I certainly enjoyed going through this a lot more than I thought I would. And I do hope to see you guys next time.